Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about a new novel out by J.M. Berger called Optimal, and I'm sure this is going to be a super fun show. So first of all, welcome back to the Loopcast, J.M. Thank you for having me, as always. Yeah, it's always great to have you on, and I'm really happy to be doing a Loopcast again because I've had to take a little bit of a break because of other things going on. So this is a great first show to sort of kick off being on the Loopcast again. For those that might not know J.M., he has a number of books out, including Jihad Joe, ISIS, The State of Terror with Jessica Stern, and also Extremism. And Optimal is his first novel, so it's a different type of writing for JM, and it's really a great book. I had the chance to read it before it was released. Thank you for that, JM, and I'm really excited to dive into this. All right. Yeah, no, I was. I really appreciated you reading it. It's, it's like the process you know, there's like such a long space between you finish writing something and something and people read it. And it's just like, it's like a desert. So it's like anybody's anytime you get somebody to read it, it's like a drop of water to, to keep you going. And it was great too, because of course, all of us are trying to f- figure out ways to keep busy during COVID-19 and nothing is better than a fantastic book and a great story to take you into a different world, which Optimal definitely does. And We're going to talk about all of that in this show, but for our listeners, you can get the book on Amazon through eBooks Kindle edition, and there's also a nifty paperback if you like the traditional traditional book, which I do, but I also like the Kindle version. It's right there very quickly. Um, And you can also follow a lot of details about Optimal at the website optimalnovel.com, and we will also post this with the show so that if you want to see all the exciting things that happen as the book has been released and going forward, you can keep track of that. So for me, reading Optimal, it was a combination of a lot of different types of writing, including sci-fi, dystopian, and also just a really good mystery. And I want to start off the show before we actually get into talking about it in questions with a quote from the book, at least from the version I had, which says, in the not too distant future, there is no war, no crime, no poverty. There is only the algorithm. And it has a few recommendations for you. And that right there is a great way of starting off this show. So (laughs) first, JM, I'm sure a lot of people that know your work and follow the amazing work you do more in very analytical, analytical research writing, they're probably wondering, what made you decide to go into writing fiction? So why don't we talk about that briefly? Yeah, so uh, I'll just say in that little bit you just read is actually a homage to Rollerball, which is one of my favorite dystopian movies, and it had that, that very similar tagline on it. So this was sort of like my my shout out to that. Um, so 
yeah, the, I, I've always wanted to write fiction. <laughs> and, I, you know, when I was young, I imagined that, you know, I would spend my entire career being a novelist and that kind of didn't work out. And I, I've written a few things over the years that have not seen the light of day, nor, nor will they. Um, <laughs> they're practice, kind of. Uh, so, uh, you know, this was like, this has been a lifelong wish of mine to write fiction. I enjoy fiction, you know, more than almost anything else. And the sort of more approximate cause of this was as, as a lot of uh, people who follow me online and people who follow Lucas know, I had been working on a nonfiction project about the history of the dystopian genre for some time. And we were just like unable to find a publisher who was interested in it. Uh, it was kind of straddling the line between being an academic book and a popular book. And so all the academic presses were like, it's, it's too much of a trade book and the trade presses were, it's too much of an academic book. And so bottom line was it, it just wasn't going anywhere. So, you know, I kind of had the thought is like, I should, I should just write a dystopian novel to, and then use leverage from that to, to promote the book. And, uh, then, of course, once I started working on the novel, uh, I, I, I sort of dithered about this for a long time. And it was actually uh, Will McCants, formerly of the Brookings Institution, now of Google, who has no responsibility for any of this content of the book. I'll say that up front. But he's, he, we were talking about it, and he was a big uh, booster of the nonfiction book. And, and I was like, he was, the, he was the one who really kind of pushed me over the edge into doing the novel. I was sort of like, you know, eh, maybe I should do a novel. He's like, yeah, do it, do it. So... I so I plunged in, I, I started it like mid-year last year and finished it in about January and then COVID hit and here we are. That's great. And I will say, I'll do my own Will McCount shout out because he always has been a great person for advice, even stuff that I've done in the past that, um, yeah, he's great with very good advice and I'm glad he gave you the advice to go down the fiction road. Yeah, uh, it really rekindled my love of writing fiction. And I mean, I, I really enjoyed do, writing this. It, it, it made me happy. <laughs> I would like to do more of it. So I'm hoping that, that this will uh, be successful enough to, to allow me to do that. I mean, I don't necessarily need to be Stephen King, but I do need to cover the time it takes to do it. And I've already started a, a new novel, which I would love to to continue working on but right now i'm focused on my dissertation for a little while so i can relate <laughs> my supervisor will be glad to hear yes exactly all supervisors yeah. around the world can also relate to this little bit of the conversation <laughs> so you mentioned your interest in dystopian literature and and i i know personally i've talked to you on loopcasts about it and i know your work on it why don't we talk a little bit how dystopian literature influenced your writing in the fiction realm? Well, so there was kind of, there is kind of a possibly an advantage to having read like, you know, 500 dystopian books before writing your own. Uh, it, it, there are a couple of ways that it really influenced me. Um, one is just a structural thing. So a lot of the stuff that I've read is like very forgettable uh, because it it's too much about whatever the point it is they want to make and not enough about telling a story. So I really kind of just thought a lot about, you know, not, not making it a dissertation in novel form, but 
but really making it a story first and then weaving it into the the context of that and and I can talk we can talk a little bit about that more in a few minutes. The other way that it really influenced things is, is just there's a huge amount of shout outs and and nods and and homages to other mostly other dystopian stuff but some non dystopian stuff as well. Uh, one of the things that, one of the perspectives that you really get in reading a large mass of dystopian fiction, uh, and not just reading classics is you, you see that like there's, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) So, uh, dystopian lit almost, almost always comes out in waves, uh, about a certain subject because it's always, you know, dystopia, ultimately dystopian, uh, stories are about things that are happening now in the world. And uh, so when something's there's some new kind of shocking development or, or some kind of major political stir, what you'll see is there's a burst of dystopian novels about the same topic at the same time. So I felt in a way that was kind of, it was like on the one hand, it really renewed my interest in, in commitment to doing something that was original. Uh, and at the same time, it also, uh, it was a little bit liberating. It was like, okay, I can, I can do a shout out to rollerball. I can do a shout out to the prisoner, uh, you know, and, and it's okay because, you know, it's just, it's just the way this genre works. It's very self-referential genre. And you talked about book structure and this concept of how certain books really do have a pattern. So I want to talk about how you decided to construct the book and this is more in the sense of plot and build up. Yeah. So the, one of the earlier, there were basically like two pieces that I had when I, I sat down to start writing. Um, one was sort of the basic conceit that it's about a world run by algorithms and, and the algorithms are like the algorithms we have in our world now problematic, except that everything is dependent on them. So I had that concept and I also, uh, I was interested structurally, I actually is, uh, I wanted to do something that sort of borrowed a little bit of the structure of The Third Man, which is a classic film noir from the 40s starring Orson Welles. And there's a, a big homage uh, to that movie in, in one of the characters' names, as well as as well as the way that character is handled. So uh, Orson Welles, for people who don't know the movie, plays uh, a sort of mysterious criminal type named Harry Lyme, who in the movie uh, is about Joseph Cotton arriving in Vienna to find out that Harry Lyme has been killed. And then he starts trying to find out what happened to him and sort of spends this whole thing peeling back his life until eventually, and this is not really a huge spoiler because this movie is so well known, but eventually it turns out Harry Lyme is not dead. And so Orson Welles talked about that part once and he sort of said, you know, like a star turn is when they, they spend two thirds of the movie talking about you before you show up. <laughs> and so I, I kind of liked that model. So I, I kind of had those two pieces and I, 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 I started off, I wrote the first chapter to do a little first two chapters really to do the world building. And then I realized quickly that I had to flesh out the backstory immediately because one of the challenges of this kind of stuff is, is really when you're doing world building, it needs to, 
it needs to function with the plot. So I realized pretty fast that I had to have a really detailed idea of where I was going in order to build the right parts of the world that, that people would interact with. So, uh, so I sat down and, and sketched out sort of the back third act of the, of the book uh, in a fair amount of detail and then went back and started writing again and things mutated along the way a little bit, but, but basically sort of that, that initial outline, uh, mostly persisted, persisted throughout the book. For me, the uh, world building exercise is like really interesting and, and, and it's also kind of fun for a writer because if you build the world well enough with sort of coherent rules, then you put the characters into it and, and events come out of the characters interacting with those rules, you know? So you can focus more on the characters and the content of their, their emotions and their feelings and what's going on with them. Uh, but at the same time you have the, the rules of the world are kind of constricting you into a, a, you know, to keep events on track and to keep those, putting those characters into deeper and deeper uh, situations. And I remember a couple of conversations over video chat or even email and you discussing the process of writing the book, how you told me a couple of times it was almost like the characters took on their own life and you were just the writer that was telling their story, which I love that. Yeah, there's a there's a point and I've seen other writers talk about this, too. You know, there's a there's a point where the writer, the characters come to life and they start driving events. And I think for this kind of story, like this kind of story or a fantasy novel, which is what the other thing I've been working on is, uh, it's great when those characters come to life because you've created a series of strictures around them. <laughs> you've created a series of rules for the world in which they function. So when the characters come to life, not only are they sort of talking to you about what they what they think and what they feel and what they're going to do, but they're also encountering these roadblocks you've set up for them. And, and so you get kind of, see, there were a couple of times in this, in this book where, you know, characters went in directions that I hadn't expected. So let's talk about this world in optimal and maybe the best way to start out with, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you are the author, but tell us a little bit what, the algorithm wars were because that's almost the history of this world. Yeah. So the book is set sometime in the unspecified future. Uh, we use the not too distant future phrase, but as a, anybody who's read a little bit of dystopian knows that the not too distant future is a pretty broad category <laughs> can cover a lot of, a lot of fairly large range of time. Uh, so it's, it's, set in the future of our world. Uh, it's set after the two world information wars have broken out. Uh, and if you follow the timeline in the book pretty closely, you can see that we're actually in the first information war, world information war now. Uh, and it's retroactively called that, um, just like World War II. Nobody called World War One World War One at the time. So nobody's calling this World Information War One, but that's that's where we are now. And so there's World Information War One. There's a second World Information War, and then finally there is there are the algorithm wars, which is a a process by which the 
biggest brains in technology in Silicon Valley set out to come up with an approach, an algorithmic approach to managing social media and managing interactivity and connectivity that solves all the problems they have up until now. So all the problems we're seeing now with the elections being stolen, genocides, extremism, hate, uh, you know, hacking malicious, malicious activity of all kinds that happens online. And so they come up with a series of algorithms that are intended to put all those problems to rest. And so our story takes place some unspecified amount of time after that has been settled and the algorithms are now in place and all the problems that we, you know, the big obvious problems that we currently see in sort of the online environment, the social media environment, the technology environment, uh, and the social environment around them, you, you see that they have been apparently solved. And this is the world, this world is the output, a world where there's, uh, an algorithmic approach to everything where your, your life is powered by recommendations. You get, you get prompted is, is the phrase that is used in the book. You get prompts to tell you when it's time to get up, what you should eat. Should you exercise? Is this person going to be a good match for you? If you want to go on a date, you know, uh, you're just, your, your life is sort of surrounded by these algorithmic prompts and it's all, uh, completely voluntary right? Just like it is now. It's like, you don't have to follow the recommendations of the algorithm. They're just there. And it just happens that the recommendations of the algorithm seem like they're generally pretty good. And so you should follow them. And so people do. And that's the question. Like what happens when you just decide, no, I'm not going to follow that, that recommendation. I mean, like you said, they're so well tailored to the individual that it's almost like, it's voluntary, but it's also foolproof that you would follow the recommendation. Yes. Although I, the, you know, the first, basically like the first two or three chapters of the book are sort of like setting off, you know, Chekhov's guns everywhere. Uh, Chekhov's gun being, you know, uh, something that Anton Chekhov's playwright said, if you show a gun in the first act, it has to go off in the third act. And so you know, I, I, there's a lot of Chekhov's guns in, those, in these first couple chapters, stuff that's, that's going to go off later. And, and you know, from the, from the first chapter, you get a couple of big red flags that maybe the algorithms aren't as perfect as they are understood to be. While they're still kind of amazing, they're clearly obviously amazing, right? You know, you like walk through this guy's day and you see how you know, Jack or the protagonist of the book uh, you know, you, you start the book with a walk through his day and just seeing how amazingly all this technology seamlessly comes together to keep his life on track. But you also see there are a couple of things that for us, for people who don't live in this world are huge red flags. And for Jack, they're kind of like, well, everything in the world is like going so well. These little things that I'm dissatisfied with probably aren't, you know, you know, probably the algorithm knows better than me about what I want to do for a job or what kind of person I want to sleep with. And, you know, for us readers from, from this time, I think, you know, by the time you get to the end of the first chapter, it's clear that there's, this is not a perfect world. <laughs> it is like superficially looks like everything's just going swimmingly and the people who live in it accept that it's going swimmingly, but we know that there's something wrong. 
another thing that in this hyper-connected world that you describe, which I feel like we're already in, as you said, we're in the first stages and the, the first war, but you have this concept of social. And instead of what we have now, where we have all of these different platforms that you can connect through social messaging, social media, etc., in your world, there's just one massive one, which the concept for me, at least, being someone that enjoys social media to an extent, but also finds it slightly overwhelming in our current time, the concept of one massive social to me was one of the most frightening things within your book. <laughs> so I'd like to talk to, about that somewhat. Yeah. So, you know, what this, in this future that we see and sort of the particulars, I guess, unfold uh, as you go and we talk more about that. I think we're going to have a point in this conversation where we switch over to a spoiler talk and we can talk more about, you know, what you understand about these things by the end of the book, as opposed to what you get from the beginning of the book. Uh, yeah, this is, it, it, it's a future where things have consolidated. Um, and so there isn't, you know, like a million websites where that you consult to find things out. You go to Wikipedia and then you look up Infowars or whatever. You know, it's like there's just knowledge. There's just one big base of of knowledge that contains multitudes, and then there's one social, and it's just social is just this massive conglomeration that you're constantly connected to. It's constantly barraging you with notifications about what's going on, what are your friends talking about, what are you know, how are your posts doing. Uh, are people engaging with you? Is there a, is there a big trending topic? Uh, it's just this, this constant murmuring in your life. Uh, and then sometimes it wells up to be even more than that. So at the beginning of the book and, and, you know, as you sort of plunge into this world, what you see is that, you know, there aren't brands anymore really for, for the technology part of things. There are still kind of consumer brands, but there's no, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook, there's just social, there's knowledge. Uh, you know, there are these sort of big pools of, of technological assistance that are available to you through wearables. Uh, and the wearables are completely sort of invisible to you in, 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 in this world. Like, you, it's not like you're checking your smartwatch or your phone. It's just something that's just constantly being piped into your, your field of vision and your audio fields. And, and it's just like... It's as if if you imagine your phone, people think of their phone as sort of the gateway to the internet. Uh, if you imagine your phone is like an obstacle in between you and the internet, then this world is a world where the the obstacle has been taken away, and now you're just you're just constantly immersed in it. That's a question I actually had because you you touch on it slightly, but how does someone actually become optimized? How does this wearable is it something that when you are born, it's just put into you? Like, how does that work in your mind? So the first draft of the book, I did not describe the technology at all. <laughs> and enough people, about half the people who read, read the early draft said they thought that was cool. And the other half were like, I really want to know how it works. So, you know, my, my thought was, you know, we're seeing the book through the eyes of these characters and, you know, if you're, if I'm writing a book about somebody in the 21st century, you know, I don't describe their phone, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like he checked his phone for messages. His phone was a 
you know, three by five black object with a glass screen that he ran his fingers over. So I wanted to just kind of blend in and just disappear and focus on the, on the experience of it. But I think, you know, people sort of beg the question for people. So I did provide a sort of very minimal, minimal uh, description of what it is. And there is some later in the book, there's some description of how it evolved, but essentially, you know, yes, at a very young age, you get equipped with your wearables and they're sort of like a nanofiber mesh that just lays over your skin. Uh, you never take it off. It has, uh, you know, basically sort of like micro projectors around your eyes that, that provide the visual inputs and it has microscopic nano audio stuff that's around your ears. And then it's like a web of stuff that you wear basically. So it's like extremely fine. It just sort of sinks into your skin. It's not an implant. You could in, in principle, remove it somehow. It would be very difficult. (laughs) Uh, Not just difficult uh, from a physical standpoint, but also difficult from a, a, a societal standpoint this becomes clearer when you go on like you can't live in this world really without it very effectively uh so it's all you know it, it, it the the actual specifics of how the wearable is structured do come out in the course of the book to some extent uh but it's intended from an experiential sort of standpoint it just disappears so, you know, it's not like a bunch of people walking around looking like cyborgs or having Google Glass or something. It's just it's just people walking around looking like they do today, only they've they've just got these extremely small devices that are that are providing input to them at all times. Not just input to them, but also filled with sensors that are measuring everything that's going on in your body so that it can feed all that information back into the system and, and make recommendations for you about, you know, if you're your health is, you know, a little less than optimal, then it gives you some recommendations on what you could eat or what kind of exercise you could do. Uh, if your mood is less than optimal, it will recommend some medications that might be good for treating that and so on. I mean, ideally it sounds fantastic, but then as the story goes on, we learn more. But before getting deeper into the story, why don't you introduce some of your main characters to us because you really have very diverse and interesting characters and I will throw out which first you know introduce Jack to us but um, my favorite character was Megumi and I'm sure you'll tell us a bit about her but introduce your characters for us. Yeah so Jack is is very everyman uh, and it was kind of interesting sort of approaching uh, approaching him as a writing project because he was in many ways he's intentionally a blank slate he's just like a sort of average person living in this world who is he's an accountant by trade so but account being an accountant is pretty simple process in this world in a lot of ways because basically you just go to your workstation and you tell it to check these books, check this company's books. And so it checks the company's books. And then if, you know, on the extremely rare occasion that something is complicated or wrong, you know, then you might have to go in and and fine tune it a little bit as a human being. So he's got this kind of very busy work job that he is more interested in art. Uh, He, he would like to be an artist, but he can't find the work that, 
pays well enough or the right kind of job for him. The system thinks he's an accountant. He thinks he's very good at being an accountant and he is. And so it recommends those kinds of jobs for him. And so he's fallen into following those recommendations as he does in almost every part of his life. Uh, Jack is like, you know, a citizen of this world. He is, he's completely surrendered to the system. He believes that he should follow the recommendations that he should do what it tells him. And if he, to, to such an extent that if he has uh, a disagreement with what the system says about him, he's inclined to trust the system more than what he knows about himself. So uh, the second character that we meet, and she's kind of the stealth protagonist of the book in a lot of ways is uh, Megumi. So the, Essentially, the, the sort of premise, you need to basically like know the premise of the book, which is that uh, in, in this world of complete surveillance and complete total connectivity, somebody disappears. A guy named Stanton Line vanishes. And it should be impossible in this world to vanish because everything is recorded, everything is uh, lined up, everybody is always connected. If he died, there would be a death notification. If he had a privacy screen on, it would give you a privacy notification. Instead, he just vanishes off the grid. And this is like an unprecedented thing that happens. So Megumi is Stanton Line's boss and her company has dispatched her to investigate why, how this guy's disappeared and what does it mean for their company. And she is from Asia. So the world is broken up into continents uh in in this future kind of context uh there aren't nation states anymore but geography still provides a little bit of friction so each continent has its own kind of optimized algorithms and so there's a bit of learning curve if you travel and almost nobody travels in this world because everything you want is right there in front of you uh so if you travel you your algorithms need to adapt to the new place you're in and it can be very difficult and disorienting. And so when we meet Megumi, she comes into this North American continent and uh, it takes a while for her systems to sync up with it. So she this kind of, you know, you start off, you can tell that there's kind of a disconnect in her language, how her words are translated in the system so that Jack can understand them. And then slowly you know, she starts to sync up with it, sort of emerges, I think, throughout the narrative as uh, you, you get to know her better as her system becomes more compatible with the system that Jack uses. More? Yeah, and so how many, I, I know we're talking about spoilers, so I'm being really careful at how much to discuss before we actually do the spoiler part, which we will let people know when that happens. But why don't we talk about Staten Lime a bit, because he is a huge character in this book and his disappearance, which is a complete shock to those in the, this world. He really sets everybody on this amazing adventure that takes place in the book. So let's talk about Staten a bit. And he has some really amazing interests that for the other characters in this world, they find it slightly unusual because... I guess looking at it from our, our view and our world, he enjoys history and what maybe we would consider as antiques, but for his time and in his world. Yeah. So Stanton Lime is, yes, he, he disappears and his disappearance 
sets off the chain of events in this. And so as, as with his uh, namesake, Harry line, you, a lot of the book is spent trying to learn about him uh, without him being present. So, you know, you're sort of walking, through his life and of course the process of walking through his life in this future world is much different than than what it was in the 1940s when joseph cotton was trying to do this thing uh so you know you can access his his social posts you can access his public photos you can see pictures of him that were taken in restaurants that he was in uh, uh you can access his work files and his work files are like basically like a complete record of every every breath he takes while he's in the office uh, so we slowly sort of peel back the, the layers of who this guy is. And, and one of the most immediate things that, that uh, sort of helps define him and characterize him is, is also related to the cover of the book. Uh, it's, he's very interested in antique technology. So his, his apartment and his snapshots as Jack sort of looks through his public feeds to learn about him sees that he's extremely interested in like old technology, old radios, old televisions, old record players. Uh, he, he likes uh, these antiques from early 20th century stuff that is even antique to us now. Um, and at, eventually you do actually kind of get some really kind of concrete explanation of why he likes those things. Uh, but they're kind of the hook. It's, it's like this sort of visual piece and, and also eventually there's sort of a social piece of it that emerges that, that comes to Jack through these ancient pieces of technology. Um, I, of course, this reflects my interests to a certain extent. I'm like, a, I really like retro technology myself. Uh, I do not have the same pieces. I cannot afford the pieces that Harry Lyme, Stanton Lyme, uh, owns in the book but uh i have some similar pieces and, and one that really i think that for me becomes sort of an iconic image for the book is uh there's a tuning device in some of these old radios called the magic eye and it's like a, a green sort of donut shaped thing that has a, kind of looks like a, a mechanical eye and it's a it's meant to sh show the strength of the signal so the eye lights up more when you're getting a signal unless when you're not getting a signal and uh that that magic eye kind of to me is is sort of the iconic image of this and it's featured on the cover of the book and it's it's there's a video that i posted on the twitter account that, that shows an actual magic eye from one of my radios uh in in work sort of how it works and how it plays so Lime's, you know, this strange guy, he's, he doesn't have a real strong social network compared to the average person in this world. Uh, and he doesn't leave a lot of footprints. He doesn't post on social. He doesn't, you know, obsessively document his life as most people in this world do and then post it for the public to see. So eventually, uh, Jack, you know, after exhausting some of his technological uh, capabilities to sort of understand this guy's life. He reaches out to people that Stanton Lyme knows. Uh, one of who is a woman named Mira, who is uh, Stanton Lyme and, and Mira are both in my mind, they're sort of like film noir characters. They're like real throwback characters. <laughs> you know, they're a little out of place in this world for various reasons. And so Mira is very uh, hopefully intriguing 
character who who knows things, but she's not necessarily just going to tell you everything because you ask her. And Jack has to court her, and he has to uh, fence with her, you know, spar with her to, to sort of get the information that he needs. And I think you actually really captured Mira's character in the way you just described her, because when I was reading the book, I pictured her as one of these actresses in an old black and white movie with like the trench coat and the big hat and very mysterious with like shadows on her face. And um, like you said, she was, she's very intriguing, but there's this mystery around her and also almost a bit of a danger around her as well. Um, So I think you really captured what you had just described very, very well in, in writing. Oh, thank you. Uh, Yeah. She's, I mean, she's definitely, I mean, both, both of them are noir characters, although, you know, it's kind of interesting when uh, my wife and I sort of talk about the fantasy casting of the book, fantasy casting of the movie of the book. uh, You know, we end up with, with people who are, we end up with actually, even though noir is like a very white genre, basically, but we end up with people of color really kind of shining out for those characters. So I'll, I'll ask you who you, who you, you would cast in the, in those parts, but we have like, uh, we have some ideas. I am probably the worst person to ask that question. Cause I'm so bad with, <laughs> with actors. I can see their faces in my head, but when it comes to names, it's not there. So <laughs> We can talk about that through email when I can actually Google people <laughs> <laughs> for uh, time constraints. <laughs> you, can, you can access knowledge while you're uh, there. You go. Yes. So why don't we go into this mystery? And as you said, everyone is trying to figure out what's happened to Staten, and eventually Jack gets access to his apartment. I feel like that's a point where things get really interesting um as you as the author though if there are if there's another point in the book that you think we should discuss before we get to that point please interject i'm just trying to figure out how to structure this without well doing yeah. the book justice and without also getting into spoilers at this point yeah it's it's so there's you know i think sort of the the first third of the book is is largely kind of setting up all the questions and then there's uh, a very distinct point really going around the scene where he gets access to the apartment where after which questions start being answered even as more questions are being set up one thing i really uh i love the mystery box kind of format of story but i really hate it when it's not uh tight <laughs> so yeah i for instance uh, people who know me know that i'm extremely embittered about lost like Lost was a show like that just set up all these fascinating questions and then failed to answer the vast majority of them. And so I really, really <laughs> lost made us all lost at the end. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I really, uh, I, I, this is kind of my answer to lost. It's like, can I set up all these questions and then answer all the important ones? I think hopefully. And, uh, so it was really important to me to sort of like have that, have that structure. And that was part of why, you know, writing out, writing out the backstory pretty early in the process. Like I really needed to know where I was going. Uh, and there was still a lot of room for things to happen unexpectedly to keep it interesting for me as a writer. But so, yeah. So the, the first 
first act of the book is sort of introducing you to the characters, uh, introducing you to this world, and it's sort of establishing the rules on how this world works. And it, it sort of builds up to a point where Jack is able to, through various means, is able to access Stan Lyme's apartment. And he goes into the apartment and he finds all this incredible old stuff. It's like so different from the place that he lives. He lives in a place that's very modern and clean and brightly lit. And he goes in and it's like this dimly lit room full of old things and strange textures and smells and sounds. And, and he encounters some of the music that, that uh, line listened to, which I, I don't want to get too specific about that, but there's a, a real, sort of point to be made in the music that Lyme listens to on these old devices as relative to the arts of this future world. Um, and it, it kind of, this whole process for, for Jack is very disorienting and emotionally disturbing because he's really very comfortable in his life. He's a very go along kind of guy and he's, he's settled into these comfortable routines and what he starts to encounter uh, as he gets into this investigation is very uncomfortable for him and it's very disorienting. And for him to go into this apartment and step into this world and to see these, this radio and the, the magic eye and everything uh, is when he really starts to just understand that he can't keep going in the world the way he has been. You know, uh, it's, it's sort of, you, you build up, he steps into this, he steps into this apartment and it's full of mysteries and secrets and, and unfamiliar, uh, sensibilities and aesthetics. And, and it's, uh, for him, it's a real threshold moment. Um, and, and some things happen while he's in there that really kind of push him over the edge to, to, uh, really dislocate him from this comfortable life that he's been living within the system. I think the best next steps is to look at this moment where his eyes have been opened to other possibilities. I mean, maybe that's a good way of explaining it and sort of the things that happen afterwards at this point. Okay, is that our our spoiler cue then? I think. What do you? How do you feel? You're the author, so I want to give you as much leeway here as I can. But uh, let's. Uh, what I would say is, is let's talk just a little bit about kind of the overarching themes of the book. Perfect. In, in the generic. Before we do that, just because I think I don't know if I'm really sort of describing you know, what are the, what are the stakes in this world? Like, uh, basically this is, uh, not just a story of technology gone mad. Uh, it's not a story about Google swallowing the, the planet, although it is that, but it's also a story about how we live in that world and, and what that world does to us. And, and Jack, uh, because he is, uh, extremely comfortable in this world, world in many ways uh he is a go-long guy he is a product of, of this society um he's immersed in it in a way that you know honestly is not going to be unfamiliar to people living in the current world i mean if you're doom scrolling you know 
10 hours a day like I do. Uh, if you're getting all your movies on streaming and your books on Kindle and your, you know, every, everything people are texting you and you don't do phone calls anymore. You know, this is a world that's uh, familiar. It's a world where, you know, it's like, what do we want to have for dinner tonight? And you go on Seamless and it recommends a restaurant to you and you order from that restaurant. It comes. And so in in some ways, it's really about the technology taking over the world and, and what that world would look like. But it's really about how 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 does it affect us to live in that world? What is it like to be a person living in this world? And what does it do to you? Uh, what does it do to your expectations? What does it do to your initiative? Um, you know, and and what are the trade-offs? What trade-offs are you willing to accept in exchange for a world of complete convenience? Uh, does that, do you think that that's, is that sort of what you took away from it? Or because like the reader, obviously a reader is, the, the author's intention is not, uh, does not rule. It's always what the readers take away from it. That is what I took away from it. And it made me consider a lot of the things that right now in our time and in our world, we just automatically take as second nature, almost this, all this technology. And like you said, streaming and being able to order something that the algorithm will give you a recommendation based on your previous interests. Um, And it really just made me look at technology, which I already know has problems, but it made me look at it in even more of a different light of it has all these benefits, but also how much of it takes away your own personal choice. And maybe that's not the right way of putting it because it is our choice to click on, yes, I will buy this product. Or you look at the recommendation, you're like, yeah, I think I'll try that. But it, it's almost like taking away that power to do the investigation yourself. And that's something I do see with, of course, news media. A lot of people instantly get their news media on different platforms. And instead of like really doing the digging and, and going to multiple sources to understand a story, it's just like they get it from one place because it's easy. It's that concept of things being just so easily provided to you that what does that do to you? and your society. Um, and, and I think for me, it really, the book really made me think of all of that in our time and sort of how it's playing out in your world that you created. Yeah. So, and, and that's, I think you, you kind of nailed it there. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what I would say is it's not about choice. It's not like you have complete freedom in this world. Like this is a point that sort of emphasized over and over again, you are absolutely free to do whatever you want. But the system will make it easy for you. And it will do things in advance. So you, when you get to a restaurant, your food is waiting for you. Like, that was you know, very creepy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you get up in the morning, you know, the, the system is sort of like prepared for what you're going to do. It sort of has your day queued up for you. And so it, to me, and, and you're free to do something different. At any point, you can do something different than what the system is recommending to you. It, but how much initiative do you have? How much motive, motive do you have? So I feel like it's about like initiative rather than free will. Like, you know, if you, if you just have this easy path in front of you, it's a very human thing to just take it and, and not push back. 
And for Jack, I think what you see in, in Jack in particular with his, his uh, both his career and his sexuality is that he is so pliant to the system. He is so uh, immersed in the system that he takes what's easily in front of him instead of what he really wants. And he tells himself that maybe he, that was what he really wanted because the system really thinks that's what he wants. So I think it's easy to fall into that. I think, I think it's a very human kind of quality and, 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 you know, that gets explored throughout the book, sort of the ramifications of that and, and what it takes to get out of that uh, kind of frame of mind. But I think there is a, I think there is a very human tendency to take the path of least resistance that's in front of you. And the question is how far will you go with that? Like how, how far will you exchange ease for freedom or for what you really want? I think that was very well said. So should we do it? Should we go? Spoilers, spoilers, yeah, spoilers, is, spoilers. For anyone listening, this is the, the point of no return. So if you're reading or you haven't read the book and you don't want to know all the juicy details, stop listening now. You can come back later. So yes, spoiler alert. <laughs> yes, this is, a, this is a mystery box book. So it is pretty sensitive to spoilers, I think. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't listen to this if you don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. So I think the best way to start this is when Jack is in the apartment and I will let you go there because there's something that's very interesting that happens that he discovers. Yeah. So two interesting things happen. Uh, the first is he discovers jazz. That it, That is true. Yes. I, that is I, the I, more important true. thing actually that happens in this apartment. So, uh, you know, there's this, this setup early in the book about you know, they go to a jazz club and they have provisional jazz and like everybody who read, who read the book, who was like giving me feedback on a chapter by chapter basis, like, Oh, you have a typo here. It's provisional jazz. I was like, no, wait for it. <laughs> so, you know, in this future world, like jazz is this very comfortable, mechanical, predictable thing. And, uh, Jack discovers Charles Mingus on the, on the, uh, the record player in, in Stanton Lime's apartment and it's a it is a big deal for him it like awakens something in him it stirs something in him emotionally that, that then renders him even more vulnerable to what's coming next which is this uh this sort of unfolding of the truth about the world he lives in uh, and so the first piece of that is there's this this mysterious broadcast coming through the radio that is the voice of the resistance, and it's your first clear signal. There were there were hints before, but there's this this is your like your first definite signal that that Stanton Lyme is involved in something that's complicated, and it's something that is at odds with with the society they live in. I think what is also interesting from this point on and, and I mean some of these characters pop up before this happens but Jack is almost immersed in the, into this completely different world based on the jazz the message that he hears and then the people that he encounters and sort of the experiences that he enjoys with these people and I, I want to talk about that a little bit because there are scenes in restaurants and there's really interesting things happening where they're dining on very luxurious food and crazy expensive wines. And, and this is a world that Jack is just not used to. Yeah. 
So, yes, yeah, so just a reminder, we're in the spoiler section now. So <laughs> what we sort of find in here, you know, uh, Mira is really kind of a gateway to, to a lot of this. She's like, or not even the gateway, she's the gatekeeper. She's the, the person who knows most of the secrets of this world, but not all of them. And she has been through the experience of seeing people collapse in the face of their their understanding of this world falling apart so she's uh cryptic she's deliberately cryptic because she's really trying to pace jack's progress through these revelations so that he doesn't have a complete breakdown and so one of the things that that sort of comes out in that is she goes out he goes out at, to dinner with Mira in a place that Stanton Lyme used to, to hang out in. It was how he sort of discovered it. And he's trying to find out what she knows about Stanton Lyme. And if she knows where he's gone, how he's disappeared off the grid and what he notices in the course of this is that, you know, she like seems to have an unlimited budget. She orders the most expensive wines, the most expensive dinners and nothing nothing seems to phase her and meanwhile she is an antique dealer and she so she really like has a a business that is not very in tune with the times so you know the question of where she gets her money starts to rise up and of course what we discover you know in the in the really get into the spoilery kind of things is that, that we get to a point later in the book where we learn that that money is a social construct that is not meaningful in this world. For me, that was, and I, I know you know this because as I was reading the book, I remember I quickly emailed you with like, money <laughs> isn't real with a head exploding emoji because for me, that was also a huge breakthrough about how this whole system was constructed and how people voluntarily stay sort of in their place and and what they think is within their means but when jack finds out through these new friends we can call them it's just like he sees that he can pretty much have whatever he wants um and, and this concept of your job and you know your job and what you can afford it's all sort of fictitious in this world yeah it's it's just you know jack kind of knows what he's what his he has like a vague idea of his salary but he doesn't actually like have a bank account that he checks because the system manages that right if he wants something he just gets it he assumes the system will tell him if he's spending too much money uh you know and and he doesn't he doesn't pay and he's an accountant <laughs> he's like that's the the really painful thing for for him as a character and in, in this discovery is like he's an accountant he's like in charge of his job is to manage money for companies and he you know finds out that that money is is meaningless there is there is really no money in this in this society uh, you know it's it's just the system allows you to settle into the level of that you expect to live at <laughs> and you just live at it and if you want more all you have to do is go forward reach for it and he's he's never done that and most people in this world have never done that I think one of my favorite parts as well in the book is, well, to, to back up a bit, there are all of these sections about debates on watches, on social, and Jack mm -hmm. really enjoys watches and purchasing watches and standing by the watch he's purchased. And, and that also 
if you know JM, he's a big watch connoisseur as well. So I did see you seeping into Jack's character in that point. But one of my favorite parts is when he realizes that he's going to test this concept of money really not having any, any, anything. It's, it's just like not there. He ends up purchasing this, what for them at that point would be a very old antique Rolex. And he's shocked that he's allowed to leave the store with it. Yet he's got this amazingly swanky watch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, uh, you know, the watch, uh, the watch debate, it was like a lot of fun for me to write. So, I mean, yes, I, I, I am very much into watches, but, you know, watches in this future society are very different from what we're accustomed to. So basically like, uh, the watches we sort of follow the track it's like the b story in some ways going through running through this until you finally get the payoff of, of what it all means at the end uh you know there's this this these watches are like complete anachronisms you know they don't tell time <laughs> the hands don't move like because you know you, you're constantly connected to the system to your internet basically you always know what time it is like it's completely foreign experience to these people that like have to look at your watch to see what time it is you just always know what the time is so these watches are are particularly meaningless <laughs> items to to get exercised about they don't have movements the hands don't move uh and yet people get into these just huge soaring violent arguments about them on on social and uh, of course, when we, we get to the end of the book, what you discover is that this is not just sort of a sideshow, but it's part of the, the, the integral qualities of how the system works, is that it, it diverts, it intentionally sucks people into these meaningless controversies to uh, manage their behavior. Why don't we talk about the different zones within the book, because that's a part that's very interesting. When Jack is having all of these realizations, he comes to realize that even the physical makeup of his world is not what he thought it was. So I will let you take it away from there. Yeah. So Jack (laughs) goes through a lot emotionally by this point in the book uh, you know, he's been into Stanton Lime's apartment. He's heard that Lime is somehow associated with this resistance. He has read a book that he took from Lime's apartment at great personal trauma because he's afraid of the police coming uh, because he's afraid it's a theft and the police will come. And he's read this book that, that gives him the first part of the backstory of how this world came to be. Um, and he's gone through a lot in terms of his own uh, personal development, in particular his sexuality. So at the beginning of the book, it's established this is like the first big red flag that you're supposed to look at and say, whoa, this this place is, you know, effed up. <laughs> As opposed to being like a technological paradise is that Jack is bisexual, but the system thinks he's not. <laughs> and he can't get the system to recognize his bisexuality. And so in the course of preceding this discovery of the zones, uh, as he's going through this investigation, the system suddenly changes his profile to, to concede that he's bisexual and he's very confused by this, but he's happy, but he's also like 
what's going on here? Because like, you know, is this, did I change? Did the world change? You know, how is this, how is this possible that like my whole life is book, you know, the system has said that I'm heterosexual and suddenly now it understands something I always knew about myself, which is that I'm not. So he's already in a sort of a difficult place, you know, at this, at this point, because he's sort of come to trying to come to terms with all these these cracks he sees in the system, this all the obvious sort of glossy veneer how the system works and, and he's questioning a lot of things. And so he goes out of his apartment and he he decides to do the opposite of his prompts. So, you know, we didn't really talk about the prompts that much in the first part, but basically like the system just prompts you to do what you're supposed to do. So if you go out for a run, it prompts you, it gives you a route and you run. So if you go to work, you're going to work, you need to go to the office or a place that you haven't been before, the system just tells you where to go. Turn left here, get on this transit station and go here. To the extent that like none of these people even really knows what a map is because they never had cause to use one. They just follow the prompts and they do, and the prompts take them where they want to go. So they don't think like, you know, they don't think about the, the physical composition of, of the neighborhoods they live in. It's just a, a place that, you know, is X minutes from another place. So and that Jack- really, actually that really reminds me of the GPS systems that we all rely on now where we're losing that ability to actually know where we're going. We just end up where it tells you. <laughs> so I, I saw a lot of connections with our current technology in that. Yeah. I mean, I, I put the GPS on to drive anywhere. <laughs> I mean, if I'm, if I'm going more than three blocks away from my house, I put the GPS on. Yeah. I mean, that's like even, even places that I've been to over and over again, I've just become reliant on it. And I think that, you know, obviously these people have that problem and, you know, there are at various points in sort of writing this, you sort of ask yourself, you have to stop and do a kind of gut check. Like, is this, will people believe this, you know, is this a believable development in the story? And, you know, what I increasingly saw was that, you know, I, I could really see how this world could come about and, and how people could become so reliant on those prompts that they would never, never explore past them, really. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. I think that's the main thing I took away from the book, as well as everything else in it, is is how relatable it is by considering what we use as technology now. And, and if it got to the point of in your book, it is that possible and a hundred percent it is <laughs> scarily enough. Well, and this, so the scene that we're, we're, I'm slowly and, and uh, verbosely trying to describe is something that actually came out of my own experience too. So Jack, when he goes out for his run after having been through all these kinds of traumatic things and starting to have real questions about the system, he decides to run in the opposite direction from the prompts. <laughs> Like the prompts tell him to go to his favorite park, go run in your favorite park. And he decides, you know, screw this. I'm going the other direction. Am I allowed to swear on the loop cast? He says, fuck this. And he like takes off in the opposite direction. And the prompts like keep trying to get him to turn around or divert to the sides. And he just decides he's not going to do it. And it's based on something he had seen uh, previously. He had some idea that there was a, a park he could run to that was near his house that he'd never seen before. And what happens is that he keeps running first. This was sort of where the credibility piece came in. It took me a while to find the exact contours of this, but you know, first like the people clear out and then he's just running through boring street after boring street. And then he ends up in a place that's completely different from the neighborhood that he lives in. He lives, Jack lives in a place that's very much Chrome and 
chrome and glass and you know gleaming high-tech modernism and he ends up in a place that looks like and is actually modeled on amsterdam it's like you know got you go from having these like plasticine uh plasticine gleaming buildings to these little colorful buildings with arches and and wooden windows and and there's a canal and there's cobblestone on the streets and it's completely completely unfamiliar to him he's never seen it before he had no idea that this was just a couple of miles down the road from him because he had never gone off his prompts and so this is actually based on kind of an experience that i had when i started walking in my neighborhood a while back for exercise a year or two ago and i would just go in i just decided to go in a direction I hadn't gone before and I would like come around the corner and there would be like there's like a giant office building like five minutes from my house that I've never seen before <laughs> you know and there's like neighborhoods and, and condos condos and, and all restaurants and and things and I mean I just always I was always on a track I like walked to walk to Davis Square I walked to the subway station I walked to the bus stop you know, I have like the, my standard store and I go there and like, you know, I sort of like turn around a corner and I was just like, wow, this is, I'm, I'm in a completely different world. I've never seen any of this stuff before. And uh, so then I decided to put it on steroids for purposes of this. And so through the book, as Jack realizes that there's this completely different area that looks nothing like where he comes from he and some of his friends, we'll put it that way, um, begin to explore a bit more. And of course, the first area that he comes into contact with, as you mentioned, it's really cheery and very quaint and charming. But there are other, well, there's one other area that is not so happy. Why don't we talk about that? Because that really shows a lot about how this whole world is set up and how the system is set up. Yeah. So, I mean, Jack, after, after he discovers this quality of the world, he and Megumi decide to explore other parts of it. So they have one lead on Stanton line that leads them to another part, another one of these uncharted areas. Uh, and so Jack goes to this other neighborhood that's another one of these zones it's like a completely different place from the the place that he lives and uh it's a much darker place so the sort of it it has a, sort of the aesthetic and the the emotional content of you know like a 1984 kind of future uh you know it's gray the people are harsh it's brutalist you know architecture instead of the the plasticine gleaming plasticine of Jack's place. And there are other sort of negative ish qualities to it. And it's like, it's completely foreign. I mean, it's like, you know, skin crawling to go into this place and it's completely foreign to his understanding of the world. And, and, you know, since we're in, since we're in the spoiler section, we'll just, we can say that, you know, what we sort of discover is that it meets the minimum criteria of what the system is supposed to provide. Every, like nobody's hungry nobody's starving there's not really any crime there's not really any violence uh you know uh those are there's just sort of like these basic uh basic conditions that the system has been was commissioned in the distant past to provide and then 
within those basic conditions, it's constantly, the system is constantly experimenting to find what's the most optimal way to manage people. So in each of these zones, you know, those basic criteria are always met, but uh, the conditions, all the other conditions are variable. And, and the system is testing each one to see what's, what is the system, what is the organization of a society that will make the people most, uh, most able to be optimized, meaning they're the most compliant and predictable. And I think what I found interesting is in this experiment, we could call it by the system, is that no one knows that there are the, uh, these other areas outside of theirs, these other worlds pretty much. And the area that you were placed into really defines who you are and how, how you are. And it was really frightening to see this area and, and how the people go about. It's so lifeless and colorless, like the way you described it. It, it just makes you so heavy <laughs> when you read it. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that is, uh, it's really hard for, for these characters to assimilate this information because they are, their expectation is that the world is a paradise. <laughs> you know, I mean, essentially, uh, whatever complaints Jack might have about his personal preferences being reflected in the system, the world is sort of objectively a paradise. It's the, the tarnished utopia approach to, to writing a dystopia. Uh, and in some ways that's, you know, very beholden to roller, rollerball, you know, uh, rollerball is a movie about the future in which, you know, there's no, it's the same, it's the same setup. That's why I borrowed the tagline. It's like, there's no wars, there's no crime, there's no poverty, there's, but there's rollerball, this super violent sport in the middle of the, of the society. And, uh, I, I find the tarnished utopia to be a really interesting you know, uh, area to explore because it really sets you up to sort of ask like, what are the trade-offs? What trade-offs are you willing to accept to, to live, you know, to live comfortably, to solve, how will you solve certain problems? You know, what other problems are you willing to accept if you're going to solve X, Y, and Z? And, uh, and there's also something, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of different modes of, of dystopia and some of the most memorable and powerful ones are really the opposite where you go in and it's immediately obvious that this is like a hell, hell society. So, you know, you got 1984 or the handmaid's tale, like, you know, you got no questions about what you're looking at when you get into those. And then what they do is it's, they're very totalist dystopias because they sort of walk you through how, the basic problems in these societies have just pervade every element of living. So what I was trying to do here is kind of split the difference in a way. So it's a totalist dystopia because every element of life is, is, is corrupted by the dystopian elements in this, but at the same time, it's a tarnished utopia. So it's, you know, it's a mystery story. The nature of the dystopia, I mean, you come into it and you sort of like as a, as a modern person, I think you look at this world and you're like immediately kind of grossed out, although at the same time a little attracted to it. Is that a fair? It's completely fair. There were times that to me, some of the things that the system offered you as a person 
it was so nice in the sense of I sat there and I was like, well, that would be really nice if something would just make that decision and make it easy for me that I didn't really have to put the effort or the work in. And also on the sense of food, like some days you're just so busy and food is the last thing you're really trying to figure out what you're going to make if you don't have stuff in your refrigerator. (laughs) And, and so there are times that I'm just like, yeah, I, I could, I could see myself doing that. And then there are other times I was completely horrified as well. Yeah. I mean, what, what are we making for dinner next? is like the main topic of conversation around here. So yes, it's in a way it's like, you know, I mean, uh, of course that's part of the fun though, right? It's like thinking about what you're going to make for dinner and, and then making it. But yeah. So, I mean, so this was, this is a totalist dystopia in the, in the way that 1984 Handmaid's Tale is but it's also a, a tarnished utopia. And so the process and the structure, you know, I mean, it's a mystery. It's intentionally, you know, self-referentially set up to be a, a mystery, a mystery story in which the mystery is what's wrong with this world. You think the mystery is what happened to Stanton Lime, And then what it, you know, turns out to be is the actual mystery that you're you're setting out to solve is what's what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with this society, and how did it come to be? And hopefully, the answers to that are are fairly horrifying. Oh, they are. They definitely <laughs> are. And before we actually go down that path, I just have one personal question: When okay. you were constructing the ideas of the different areas within the world, did you at all have in the back of your mind? thoughts on segregation because it in a sense i know this is a completely different way of looking at it but how society was segregated in the past in a sense i could see some of that seeping into the story a bit when i was reading it it reminded me of a different form of segregation almost yeah so there was yes i certainly was thinking about that but also something that i deliberately set out to do in this book is not to have it be a racial dystopia. So Right, exactly. Yeah, there of, isn't racial segregation. Let me just make yeah. that clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, but yeah, there's but there is that element of things. And, and 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 a lot of dystopias, many, many dystopias have like a, a weird racial undercurrents to them. And I thought it would be novel to not have that. So this society is very diverse that they live in. Uh, I never describe anybody's race, although there are some some signals about some people's races, but you know, basically I don't, you, you, are not ever confronted with that. It is in, but it is done in such a way as to suggest to you that this is a very diverse society. So because that's what the algorithms were instructed to fix, right? <laughs> like fix, fix inequality. Um, so equality ends up being defined in this very narrow way of uh, like, we're going to solve X, Y, and Z problems, and then everything else is going to be different. So, you know, and I was really influenced, I mean, influenced in thinking about that, including there was an anecdote that uh, my wife had told me about, you know, South Africa, like people in South Africa, like not, you know, some people went who lived in white neighborhoods during their whole lives and never went to into black neighborhoods. They were just a mile or two down the road. Uh, I think that we're capable of, as human beings, we're capable of sort of sectioning people off and not concerning ourselves with them. And the system, it, as as you sort of find out as you go through the book, the system reflects the mentality of the people who created it. So there are, 
I will say this, there's, there's like a lot of additional exploration of this, that could, a lot of additional stories and additional issues that could be fleshed out in this world. And I'm, I'm pretty, I have some ambivalence about a sequel for various reasons, but certainly I have a lot of ideas for a sequel. Should I, should it, it turn out that that's a good idea? <laughs> so uh, exploring the kind of those questions, I think is definitely, is definitely uh, part of it. And I'm glad you mentioned I'm glad you mentioned the sequel comment because we did have a listener send us a tweet asking if there would be a sequel because they apparently just finished the book. So I, I think they enjoyed it and they were hoping that there'd be a sequel, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, so the, the end ending, we are again in the spoiler section. So uh, the end total ending of this has that, uh, you know, the quality of uh, Vertigo, right? <laughs> the movie Vertigo, uh, where you're left very intentionally on a, a cliffhanger that is not intended to be resolved. So on the one hand, having a sequel, I think, would detract from the power of that ending. Uh, on the other hand, there are ways to tell stories in this world that either don't directly answer that question or where, you know, the, the, the question that's posed at the end is reserved for maximum impact later or something. But I do have ideas. I, I, I have some ideas about where I would go in a sequel. And then I actually heard a, a just fantastic jazz song that really immediately kind of was like the opening montage of the sequel. And so I was kind of like, Oh man, all right. Now I'm more interested in this. <laughs> I love how music really influences the characters in the book, especially Jack, but also influences you as a writer. So yeah, again, really, we're seeing similarities, similarities with you and Jack to some extent. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm a little of Jack and I'm a little of Stanton. And yeah. a, I think a little of Mira also. Uh, Megumi, not so much because Megumi has kind of unique backstory which we, i'm sure is going to be something we talk about in the spoiler section here yes uh, why don't we get into that like let's let's best way i can just start this because there's just so much and i will let you have the liberties since it is your book and i'm always <laughs> not sure how to do spoilers <laughs> but, yeah, i mean and also like i mean honestly it's like really interesting to me to hear you talk about it so i mean i'm happy to i'm happy to have a back and forth Great, but let's talk about what is wrong with this world because it looks so idealistic to some extent when you're first reading it, and then slowly but surely you see the cracks and the flaws. But as you go further into the book, you see that there is a lot of wrong going on. So I will let you take it away from there. Yeah, so I mean, you know, people who uh, work on these issues in the tech sector I think may or may not glom onto the kind of the big bad secret of this world earlier, but there are numerous references to the thing that drives a lot of the problems that we have on these social media platforms, which is scale. So, you know, particularly Facebook, but, but all of the companies will talk to you about scale being this huge problem. So you've got billions of people interacting on Facebook today. I mean, you know, not even in this future world. Uh, and, you know, just countless unbelievable amounts of content being generated constantly and, and 
unbelievable amount of interactions and it's it's literally impossible for a human being to understand and wrap their heads around all of it so you have algorithms to manage things so facebook in in my field in particular in extremism uh our field uh you know, the Facebook has algorithms and that are designed to take content down and they take down, as they are fond of saying, they take down 99% of the content before anybody ever sees it without a report based on the algorithms. So scale continues to be a problem and scale problem gets worse as people start wearing wearables more. And, and in the book that sort of proceeds from the moment we're in right now with COVID-19, uh, you know, that the demand for medical surveillance and, you know, leads people to start buying and wearing wearables. And then once you're wearing the wearable that checks your temperature to see if you have a fever, why not also have it deliver your emails or do whatever. So eventually uh, the complexity of the world and the complexity of the inputs that are coming from these ubiquitous wearables become so overwhelming that the, the systems, no matter what anybody tries, they can't solve the problem of scale. Everything is too complicated. It's just like there are too many potential interactions between people and too much data coming in at scale to ever manage. And so the tech bros in the history of this world decide, you know, well, if scale's the problem, let's just have the algorithm solve for scale. So the algorithm solves for scale. Uh, uh, and it's also for scale by looking at the human population and saying, this is, this scale is too large. We need a smaller scale. And so over time, the algorithm, of course, uh, I mean, there's a couple of really kind of, I think, important points in here, which is one of which is the algorithm is not sentient. Like it's not an artificial intelligence that's out sinister trying to kill us. And two, the algorithm doesn't really do things to you. It just empowers your choices. But uh, once it's asked to solve for scale, it starts empowering a lot of bad choices. So uh, it, it, when it, you get your search results, you get, you know, anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories, or you get, you know, right-wing extremism and things. The, the algorithm basically solves for scale by giving humanity all the tools humanity needs to reduce its population drastically. <laughs> let's talk about what happens because there's a point we find out that what I'm going to call the inhabitants of this world are not all that they seem. Yes. So, yeah. So the, the algorithm is, you know, sets about uh, reducing, reducing, drastically reducing the population of the world, but at the same time, it's trying to keep people happy and manageable. And so when, as the population, the human population goes down, the people are replaced with asteroids, as, as it is called in the book. And that's something that we kind of refer to. And that comes out of, you know, my work on influence operations really is astroturf is something that we, we word we use for social media accounts that are fake, that are designed to manipulate people. And in uh, the future world of optimal astroturf has two purposes. So there's astroturf on social, which is just designed to sort of steer people in right directions, keep everybody pliable and compliant 
by building an appearance of consensus. So everybody kind of agrees that this is the way the world should be. These are the values we should have. And then that's reinforced by a bunch of mythical people on social who are posting to, to reinforce those notions. But it's also, the AstroTurf is also there to keep people from realizing that the population of the world has been drastically reduced. And so it populates the, the city. <laughs> And it, it's always at a distance. The system keeps it at arm's length. So, you know, like though you pass a restaurant and the restaurant looks busy and thriving and there's like lots of people in there, but the algorithm, but the system prompts you to go somewhere else because it's too full. So there's a waiting, you have to wait for an hour to go in here, or this isn't really the kind of food you would like. And, you know, there's a food you would like better down the street. So yeah, I mean, the, the function of a lot of this AstroTurf is, is to make this world look lived in. And I love there's a scene in the in the book where Jack and his his group of adventurers, as I'm going to call them, they do try to go into a restaurant and, and the prompts tell them, nope, sorry, it's full. And when they ask about getting a table, it's a massive wait. And so, like you said, the system really wants to take you away from the astroturf, probably so you don't catch on, so that you see it from a distance and everything looks normal. But if you're around it closely you can see that there are signs that everything is not as it seems yeah i mean they're they're there to make the place look lived in so they're there to sort of reassure you that everything's fine and you know 99 percent of humanity has not been killed off and, and uh but they're not meant to to really interact <coughs> So there's, there's, there's astroturf on social that's meant to interact to sort of manipulate you by building consensus. And then there's the astroturf in the real world is not really meant to interact. It's just meant to look convincing. And, you know, I think hopefully by the end of the book, you're left with some major questions about the astroturf. Uh, and, and that would be, uh, that would be an area that I would definitely be looking at exploring in a sequel if I were to do one. Ah, nice. Because yeah, I do have some questions about certain AstroTurf, <laughs> which yeah. people can get to in a bit. Well, I'll um, tell you, I'll just tell you just as a, a teaser, like the song, the jazz song that grabbed me and made me start really thinking seriously about where I would go in a sequel is, uh, it's uh, by Max Roach and his orchestra. It's called Motherless Child. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you listen to that, I mean, it just, just the title should already sort of triggers some some interest in uh you know these astroturf uh the astroturf the nature of the astroturf and and megumi's megumi's life experience and uh the song is really like powerful like really emotionally stirring and i just like i had already kind of written sort of like half of a scene of the sequel just because i had an idea and i just wanted to put it down real briefly and it, it pertains to the astroturf and then i just when I heard that song, I could just see the movie. I could just see like that song playing as we like pan over and into the going into that scene. And I was just like, okay. I love I this. I feel like there will be a sequel sometime or, or just a, a second book that is in the genre and in takes place in the world. But um, yeah, I look forward to reading it if and when that happens. But so we also want to talk about that Staten Lime they do find him. And why don't we talk about that a bit? Because once they find him, things get even more wild and surprising. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, since I, I was emulating the third man here, uh, you know, the structure of the third man is that, you know, you spend this whole movie searching for Harry Lyme. And then when you find him, you know, he takes you on a journey figuratively, <laughs> uh, in this case, also literally, uh, Stanton line is, is they discover that what he has done is he's disconnected from the system, uh, through, uh, I, I had given a lot of thought about how, how he was going to disconnect from the system and what was the explanation for this going to be. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's kind of, when you say it without reading it in the book, just as if somebody has actually like decided to defy all the spoiler warnings and, and listen to this without reading, having read it, uh, it sounds kind of stupid, I think, when you say it, but I hope that it works in context in the book is that uh, he is disconnected from the system by refusing the terms of service. <laughs> and I love that because in a sense, to me, I, I, I thought that was brilliant because in a sense, when you read about the system and how this world works with the system, pretty much controlling it, you kind of have this thought that you don't have that option to disconnect from the system. It just seems like it's just so pervasive that you just know it's there and that's how it works. But that little simple thing of just not saying yes to updating, it's just, it's amazing. Well, you know, it's like we, we are so conditioned to this that we, almost everybody, I think at this point, just if you were asked to accept that you're installing something, you put something on your phone, you get your phone, you just ask to accept the terms of service and you do. It's a ritual consent and almost nobody reads what they're consenting to. And so this is like that to take into the uh, complete extreme. And it sort of, it's meant to emphasize the fact that this is a consent driven society that, you know, informed or not people consent to this over and over in their lives. Whenever the system updates its, its capabilities, it gives you a terms of service consent agreement and you have to accept it and everybody just does and what you know stanton line and his his friends in the resistance discover is that they find somebody who has who in a who for whom the system is particularly not working uh, a guy who is uh particularly he lives in the the, the bad zone zone six and he uh has chronic pain, but the system doesn't recognize the pain. So it keeps prompting him to do his, get his step count in and it's just driving him insane. So he just decides he's going to opt out. He just decides to refuse the update and discovers that he's been completely locked out of everything he needs to live. So when Stanton Lyme and, and Gloria and Otto, the other people in the resistance discover this, then what they realize is that this guy just kind of opted out. And so he was screwed. He's like, you know, living on the streets and unable to feed himself and unable to, to get shelter uh, because he's disconnected from the system that literally everything depends on. But uh, Lyman and his, his resistance people realized that you could plan for this, right? You know, so like if you, you stockpile supplies and you have, colleagues and and you can sort of do something you can sort of do this in a way that is more considered so that when you disconnect from the system you're not just going to starve to death immediately and so that's why stanton lime has disappeared 
from the he's gone off the grid because he refused the terms of service and and he's out there uh trying to understand this world without without access to that system so the characters know that they have decided that there are a certain amount of areas or zones and they learn that your id number correlates with what zone you are from and they realize that there is something else out there so let's talk about this part of the book and and this is getting closer to the end of the book and this huge revelation about this world and this system yeah so you know we uh catch up basically jack and and megumi and uh his friend jack's friend yusuf catch up with Lyme, they find him and Mira comes along in order to try and mediate between the resistance people and, and Jack and his friends. And so they discover that, uh, Lyme and, and his friends are holed up in this old quarter of the city, uh, uh, a place where which is kind of outside the grid. And, uh, they have found that there's another, some kind of other city that's, that's off, just over the horizon that's not accessible via map or any kind of directions. And so they decide they're going to go explore this place. And while they're driving to this place is how you get a lot of the backstory. Um, Mira tells the story of how, what her life is like. And then Lime fills in the, the gaps in the sort of history of this place, but he doesn't know where they're going. And so what we discover as we're driving up to this is that this this mysterious city over the horizon that they're they're investigating is they discover that it is new tokyo it is the city that megumi is from that they thought was on another continent and uh and the city when they get there what they discover is that the city is completely populated by astroturf megumi was the only actual human in in new tokyo and it was part of the system's kind of experimentation to see ultimately you know the big the big revelation that you get in the drive over there is that the system has determined that the optimal and that's the the title joke finally paying off at last uh the optimal human population for algorithmic management is 379,000 people and that everybody else is astroturf and when you get to the city, you know, it's sort of like opens up to you the possibility that the system is still experimenting to find what the right number of people versus AstroTurf is. And it, so the Megumi's life is an experiment to see if one person <laughs> surrounded by AstroTurf could be, could be optimized, have an optimal experience of life. And that section of the book and that revelation when you see it through Megumi's eyes, it's it's really heartbreaking because if you put your own self in, in her place, yeah, it's like her whole world, her whole personal history isn't as it seems. It's it's not real, and it's it's like, like that's her identity, and even her family. There's that scene where they go and they see her parents and they realize the parents are also astroturf, which, I mean, she's, she's building up to it. I think she knows before they get there because of everything that's revealed 
during the fabulous road trip, as I like to think of it on the way over. Um, but it's just, it's so soul shattering as well, because you think of the effects on Megumi for the rest yeah. of her life. Well, you know, I really, so the, some, some things in the book were decided pretty early, including a lot of the, the story that Stanton Lyme tells are, are things that I planned, you know, at the beginning and was working my way toward. And one of the things I knew pretty early was that, that Megumi had come from this environment. And so to me, in some ways, Megumi's arguably more the protagonist of the book than, than Jack is. Um, Jack is our vehicle to watch it, but Megumi is the person who's like even more horrifically affected by it, by the discoveries and uh, watching her kind of emerge you know, first, when you meet her, she's kind of, there's this distance that's imposed by the algorithmic disconnect. And then slowly you get to know her and she, you know, flushes out and, and becomes very real. And, uh, you know, I was very attached to her and it was just, uh, I mean, it was real. I mean, I was wrecked writing, <laughs> writing that chapter. Uh, I was, I was just a wreck by the end of that, by the end. I think the other interesting thing is, is there are little hints, even at the starting of the book, when Megumi comes into Jack's life. And a lot of it, like you said, at first, when you're reading it, you chuck it off to the translations not picking up because she's taking time to get adjusted to Jack's area and zone versus where she comes from. And so there's like this disconnect of understanding each other right away. And then there's this concept of Megumi really social distances pretty much. Like she doesn't like to be touched. Um, but Jack also kind of considers that maybe it's, it's something that's more common from where she comes. So we could see it as like a cultural thing um, or a cultural practice or a practice in the family. But when you get to the end of the book, you realize it's so much more because of how she was raised and in the environment she was raised. So yeah, there, one thing that was a lot of fun for me in writing this is, uh, and I, I hope that the book will hold up to like rereading. I think people, hopefully people will want to reread it because almost everything is foreshadowed. <laughs> like, I mean, I think, you know, not, not to the extent that like, I think, you know, you, if you're particularly in sync with my sensibility, you might see some of the stuff, stuff coming. Uh, but like very specifically things are foreshadowed. So for instance, everywhere Jack goes in the book throughout the entire book, it's always, it wasn't very crowded. <laughs> you know, like it's like the human places, the astroturf places are crowded, but the human places are never crowded. And that phrase repeats over and over from the very first chapter. Uh, similarly, Megumi, all, all, almost everything around Megumi is is sort of derivative of that. So what you see, one of the first things you see about Megumi is that she's like obsessed with the food she gets in, in New Boston, in the, this city, because it's so much better than the food she got at home. Uh, and, you know, then there are other more subtle things. So she talks early on about how people smell different. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like... As she's adjusting to, to North America, she, she sort of mentions that people smell different and it just must be, you know, use different kind of sip or something, but whatever. And people are warm. 
and hot even like this. So there is a scene where she gets touched, you know, prior to we, to we, when we get this revelation, somebody touches her and she recoils from it. But she says like, your hand is so hot, you know, like, so there's like, I, I, I really took pains. I, one thing that I like in a book like this is I want, I want to read something where I have a fighting chance to guess at the secrets, <laughs> even if it's a long shot. And if I want to, if, and if I didn't guess them, I want to go back and reread the book and go, Oh wow. Yeah. It was all there. So I really like tried to put that stuff in there as much as possible. And the more you're talking about some of these revelations and, and I read the book, I will make a disclaimer. I read it probably a month ago, a month and a half ago, time right now is hard to keep track of with COVID-19, <laughs> but I'm guessing about a month, month and a half ago. And some of the things that having that break between reading it and the stuff you're mentioning, it's, it's like those breadcrumbs are all coming together because there's things that maybe I didn't quite remember right away. But now I see just discussing it more with you, how it, it really is. Like you, you do leave the breadcrumbs that if someone wants to really follow them, they might be able to figure it out ahead of time. But you also do a really great job at not revealing stuff where you can figure it out very quickly. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe if someone's very avid in figuring things out, they could, but it, it, it's just little subtle things. And I, yeah. I love that about the book. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, you know, I love to reread books myself. And so it was really important to me that like on rereading, everything had to line up. Like I didn't want you to reread it and be like, oh wait, that that was complete bullshit. That, you know, if that was true, then how all these big secrets, and, you know, and it's, it's the lost uh, issue, right? <laughs> so it all you comes want, back down to lost. Yes, <laughs> yes. You want, it, you want it to, when you get to the end, you want it to make sense within the confines of the fictional world. You know, obviously it's not literally, some things aren't literally true, although I, I did try and keep this grounded in, in the realms of the possible. Um, but you want it to make sense. It has to have an internal logic and it can't be self-contradicting. So I, I really took a lot of pains to try and make sure that that was the case. And I also took pains not to leave too many mysteries on unanswered although i did leave a couple of open things that areas to be explored should it should a sequel happen um but i really wanted to give you a pretty comprehensive answers to all the questions that were that were raised in the in the course of the story well i have no idea how long this podcast has been but like i said we did <laughs> spoiler alert so people can view it as like two separate podcasts if they want to listen to it at different times but with that being said, to wrap it up, I'm going to hand it over to you and let you as the author and the creator of this world finalize this in whatever way you want to, whether it's more big revelations or thoughts of the whole process for you or the characters, just I'm handing it over to you at this point. Uh, I guess what I would say is, you know, what I, I hope that it is, you know, uh, entertaining and it's in its horrifyingness and thought provoking. And what I, I think that, you know, something as somebody who has read a lot of dystopias and has a lot of opinions about their impact on society. Uh, I think it's complicated. I think that there's like layers, even for me as the writer of it, there are sort of layers to the story that kind of really bear, uh, 
consideration. So, I mean, in the way the story is very critical of people being pliable, right? You know, people being sort of uh, amenable to the control of the system, but at the same time, the people who are amenable to control the system are also the sensible people, right? <laughs> so, you know, the people who, who follow the recommendations are the people who escape the pandemic, who people who wear masks, you know, in our, our current our current world, the people who wear masks, the people who will take vaccines. And there's a, there's a weird tension between being the person who understands that you know, and follows that sensible consensus versus the person who uh, says, you know, screw this, we're going to, we're going to expose Pizzagate instead. And I think it's, it's more complicated than it seems. And and when I think about this, what I really think about and, and something that was a huge influence on this book is The Prisoner, uh, the 1967 TV show, which uh, fans of the genre, many fans of the genre would probably be familiar with. Uh, the Prisoner is, a, is an interesting story who's, that has really evolved in my mind over the course of the years. So in the initial, when I read the, watched The Prisoner as a young man, it's about, it seems like it's very much about individuality and the, the importance of being your own man and standing up to social pressures. And over time, in terms of both my reading of it as a, as a viewer and also my reading about some of the, the comments of the creators of it, talking about it, what you also kind of understand is that that being your own man, being that individual and asserting that kind of desperate, uh, desperate quest for freedom is also self-destructive. And that's part of the message of the prisoner. It's not an obvious part of the message of the prisoner, but I think that, and I think similarly, you know, this raises without necessarily answering the questions of sort of, you know, how do you, how do we balance, uh, how do we balance the need to get people to do things sensibly to function together as a society versus our own individual freedom and, and our, our need to be free and to, to be ourselves. And I think, you know, uh, I'll be interested to see how people see it, how people read it, because I think that those are questions that, by taking the story, you know, to such an extreme conclusion in terms of what the real the revelations that we get in this, uh, in, in some ways as a social commentary, uh, it would have been better to stop short, you know, uh, not to have like essentially like a, a statistical genocide of the human race and not to have everybody replaced by fakeries. Uh, it's like such an extreme monstrous ending that it may obscure some of the more subtle questions and considerations. And so you, you, when you do this kind of thing, there's a tension between the storytelling and the, and the moral of the story. And you hope that people take something useful away from it instead of just being completely overwhelmed and, and horrified, but we'll see. And also I'm going to send you lots of good luck because I know that the book has been entered in the Kindle storyteller competition. So sending lots yes. of positive energy for that because. Thank you. And if you're a, if you're a listener who likes the book enough that you've sat through all these many hours, we, we must've been talking by now. Uh, 
please uh, consider leaving a review on Amazon because that's a, a, an issue both with the contest and also just for the book in general. Uh, you know, out, out of the stuff that I've done in my career, uh, I, I'm proud of and, and love all my children, but I don't love all my children equally. I love this one more. <laughs> so I really would love it if, if people... Uh, if people would see their way clear to leaving a review and, and spreading the word, uh, it, it would mean a lot to me. So, I will definitely be doing that because I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. And I also, I know that the timing probably was completely unexpected because none of us really knew we'd be in a pandemic, but I will say it was a great book to just take me out of the world that we're in right now, which is also difficult to deal with at times and into a completely different world with amazing characters. And I just thank you for sharing the book with me ahead of time too. So I, I can say nothing but good things about the book and I highly recommend it to our listeners. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I was really glad to have you as a, as an early reader and, uh, you know, uh, really a lot of, there's, there's a lot of things that, I would want to accomplish with this career wise, but mostly I just want people to read it. So that's the thing you want as a writer is for somebody to read it. So. And I think that's the best way to end this podcast. Just give JM some happy feels and read his book. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on the show and spending your Sunday with us, JM. This has been great. It's always good to catch up and I'm super excited for you. And I look forward to seeing the great future that Optimal has. Thank you. Thank you so much.